All right. Well, this month marks the 34th anniversary of the most economically destructive and deadliest volcanic eruption in the history of the continental United States. Some of you guys, if you're old enough, might remember that on May 18, 1980, at 8.32 a.m., Mount St. Helens erupted right outside of Portland, Oregon. Uh, this thing is so massive that the explosion could be heard 300 miles away. The blast was so extensive that a ton of rock exploded for each person on the planet. The explosion rock with the power of 500 atomic bombs. Incredibly powerful. Amazingly, only 57 people died in this explosion. Uh, there could have been more. Now, the deal was uh, there was effort of one man. His name was David Johnson. He was a scientist at the time, working, studying the volcano. And the volcano had been dormant for 100 years, and so a lot of people didn't think that there was going to be anything that would happen. Uh, all of a sudden, earthquakes started to happen around the volcano. David Johnson was there as a scientist studying the whole thing and he had noticed that on the side of the volcano before it erupted there was a bulge and he correctly although he was a minority voice said that bulge is actually going to erupt and this volcano is going to go poof sideways well this was a logging community. Most of their economy was around logging industry or tourism, so you could understand how people were very slow to want to evacuate. But he, he pressed on, and with the National Guard's help, they were able to evacuate hundreds, and lots of people were saved through the efforts of this one man, David Johnson. However, there was one fella named Harry Randall Truman, not Harry Truman the president, but a different Harry Truman, who lived right next to the volcano, and he did not flee. It was a lodge owner, he was in his 80s, and he said defiantly, uh, I think this thing was never going to erupt. I think this is all hogwash. So instead of using his uh, public uh, persona to kind of help people get away, he did the opposite. He stood up for his rugged individualism and stuck a stick in the mud and said, I will not leave. He even became a media sensation so much so that kids began to sing songs about this guy. He began to get marriage proposals from across the country. After all, who wouldn't want to marry a man in his 80s who's making his stand in the shadow of a volcano, right? <laughs> so, this guy just said, I had a quote from him. He said, uh, this is heavily... There's a lot of woods in this area, right? There's a lake between me and the mountain, and it's a mile away. This mountain's never coming down, and neither am I. Well, the fatal day finally came, and neither David Johnson, the scientist, or the stubborn Harry Truman were very far away from the mountain. David Johnson was right up on the edge of it, studying it so he could help uh, scientific advancement and help people in the future know how to get out of the way of volcanoes. Harry Truman, on the other hand, was holed up in his log as usual. After the blast, sadly, neither of the men survived. When I recently read this story, I was touched by how David Johnson seized this opportunity. He saw it coming, and he seized it and was able to save hundreds of lives through his hard work and through his effort, through his attentiveness to what was going on. And I was also stunned how this man, Harry Truman, squandered the opportunity to help people. And actually, he pushed against the opportunity in the opposite direction by saying, nothing's going to happen to this volcano. What a wasted opportunity by this guy. What a squandered experience. 
And this story in some ways mirrors our life, doesn't it? As the season changes, as summer approaches, we have an impressive season looming like an erupting volcano in front of us. We know summer's coming, right? There'll be a lot of changes. We're going to travel like we never do throughout the rest of the year. We're going to be outside more like we never do. We're probably going to spend money in a way that we never do this summer. We're going to talk to different people. All of that is an opportunity that's coming. And all we have to do when we face it is say, are we going to make the most of this or are we going to squander it? We want to do something together that allows us to not squander a moment. What is it specifically? Well, it's in the logo. I want to call you this morning to whatever you face this summer to treasure Jesus Christ. How can we during the summer treasure Christ in a way that we don't waste, we don't squander all of the opportunities that summer presents? And that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. As we start, we, we have some preliminary questions, I think. Uh, you may be new to this. You may be thinking, well, is that right? Is, are we even meant to treasure Christ? I thought He was God. I thought we were just supposed to worship Him. What do you mean by treasure? What do you mean by enjoying Jesus? Is He actually to be enjoyed? Well, yeah, we have a heritage from the people of God that's been handed down to us of treasuring God, of enjoying Jesus. People faith have always enjoyed God. Turn with me if you want to to the book of Psalms. We could go anywhere in the Old Testament, but uh, for our purposes we're going to stay mainly around the Psalms this morning. Hopping around a few different ones. Turn to Psalm 42. What I want you to see is that this business of enjoying God is a pattern in the Old Testament. Let me read for you Psalm 42, verse 4. We see a lot of the celebration of God revolving around the temple. They go to the temple, they enjoy God for all He is. Verse 4 of Psalm 42. These things I remember, says the psalmist, as I pour out my soul, how I would go on with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with what? With glad shouts and with song of praise. That's that joy I'm talking about. The people of God will go to the temple and enjoy God. Also, from Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. I want to read you this verse. The psalmist says similarly, My soul longs for the courts of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the gift of the psalm of the sons of Korah, that's the introduction of the psalm there. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You could see there, again, the psalmist enjoying God Himself. He's singing songs of joy to God. And like I said, this is Memorial Day weekend. I don't know if you've seen the commercials on TV that are showing off. I don't even forget what product they're advertising, but the hook is they're showing uh, military men, service men and women coming back from the service, and they're surprising their little kids, right? So they might show up at their school, and the kid's giving a report, and all of a sudden, dad walks in the uniform, and the kid's like, yeah! They can't even speak, and they run, and they hug, and it's wonderful. And they're playing ball, and they look up in the stands, and it's dad, and they drop the ball, and they run. Just this moment of longing and joy fulfilled. And that's what we see in the people of God in the Old Testament fulfilling their joy in God. 
But that leads us to the question, why would they do that? I can understand how, how a son would seek to fulfill his joy in his dad coming home, but God is not human. Why, why would they do that? Why would, how could they enjoy God so much? Well, you can check this out. Uh, in one scripture, First Chronicles 29, you can turn there or listen to me read it. First Chronicles 29 has the scene of David, the king, gathering all of his military and his best leaders and his elders, and they gathered all around in an assembly. The scriptures say that they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. They were coming to God and enjoying Him. Why? We found out if we read this text beginning in verse 10. First Chronicles 29, verse 10 gives us a hint to why they're enjoying God so much. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. They're praising God for His greatness. They would get together. They would remember the greatness of God. And this would boil up joy inside of them. Continuing on, both riches, says David, and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and your hand are power and might, and your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, we praise you, your glorious name. They give strength to all. They also gathered and enjoyed God because of His great gifts to them. God had given over and over and over to the people of God in the Old Testament, and they enjoyed that. They came together to enjoy God for His gifts and for His greatness. And we see this throughout the Scripture. People are remembering. They're churning in their minds. They're recalling His good favor and His mighty character. What I want us to do today is to become theme trackers of sorts. All right, We're going to track this theme, trace it from a few ways that God was enjoying the Old Testament, then follow the tracks forward to Jesus, and finally look at our own summers and see how we too can enjoy Christ for our hope and for our faith together. So that's the ride. Here we go. First, we'll look at how the people of God in the Old Testament take joy in Him by meditating on His presence with them. Meditating on His presence with them. That's how they took joy in God in the Old Testament. Here's an example. Psalm 132, 13-14. It describes the sons of Israel as shouting for joy. Why? The Scripture says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. He dwells there. This is my resting place forever and ever, says God. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Also, Psalm 1611, a verse that some of us memorized not too long ago, says that God's presence. In there, there is a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The emphasis here is coming and meeting God, being in His presence, and taking joy there. And C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Chronicle of Narnia, there's a, a theme there that I love, but it's often overlooked. The theme is the children coming to Aslan the king. When they first meet him, they're scared of him because he's a big lion, he's ferocious. But as the saga continues, they become uh, people who yearn to be in his presence. Why? Because they can uh, frolic with him. They can play with him. They can stroke his fur. They can pet his mane. They can just be near him, feel his breath. They took joy in Aslan. What 
a beautiful picture of the joy and the presence of God. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, we need to be aware of what changes here. Because in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we're now reading after Jesus has come. That means that the hopes of God's people are transformed. The promises of God are fulfilled and the attributes of God are displayed in Jesus Himself. So things are changing. In the past, the Messiah hadn't come, but in the time of Jesus, all the promises were fulfilled in Him so we can look to Him and see how the hope is Transform this hope of God's presence within. We can see that in, for instance, Acts 2.26 was a sermon that we looked at not very long ago here as we're studying through the book of Acts. Peter's explicit when he says that the coming Messiah whose presence brought King David so much joy has now arrived. So he's preaching a sermon and he quotes David looking back at his joy and he says now that joy is here when he says, quoting David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My flesh will also dwell in hope. So the early disciples, the early believers, were able to say, hey, that God that was hoped for, the Messiah is now here in Jesus, and we can take joy in Him together. Also, Luke chapter 2. You see, like the world's coolest birth announcement, right? No shutterfly needed for this one. Instead, they use angels, right? The angels come and just announce the birth of God. And what do they say? I've got good news of great joy, right? The emphasis is joy has come. Joy has arrived in Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is with His people. He's present. John would say... That God is now tabernacling with us in Jesus. Remember the Old Testament tabernacle representative of God's presence. He would dwell there with them. Now John said, Jesus is tabernacling with us. We could have joy in the God specifically through Jesus because He is God's Son who has come. Let's take joy in Him. We see it as Jesus enters triumphantly at the end of His ministry into Jerusalem. Luke 19, 37. Everybody comes and they rejoice in Him. And they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They are taking joy in the presence of God, Jesus Christ. And His presence with us is one of the foundational trusses of our enjoyment in God. The fact that He is with us sets the foundation for our enjoyment of God. For after all, if He was a good, righteous, perfect, holy God, but He wasn't near us, how could that impact us, right? But the fact that Jesus has come to be close to us gives us great hope. Here are some benefits of the nearness of God in the Spirit of Jesus to us today. So we've looked in the Old Testament, glanced at Jesus. Now let's look why that matters to us today. Because of the nearness of God in Christ, we can, during the summer, call out to Him, right? Oh, how meaningful it is to know that when stressed, we can call out. He can listen to us. We all have times of stress this summer. We can speak to Him, call out to Him. Others may ignore you. Right? But Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, will never ignore you. You can call out to Him because of His presence here. Neither will He abandon you. There's another benefit of the presence of God in Jesus Christ. He will not abandon you. There's a lot of shame involved in abandonment, is it? Many of us come from families where abandonment happened. Many of us had one of our parents leave when we were younger. Daddies who are no longer fathers because they left the home. 
or perhaps a spouse promised fidelity failed to deliver, right? That more than hurts, it scars us by ripping a hole in our soul. Abandonment, hurt. Always wondering, was that my fault? Could I have avoided this by doing something different? That's the sad counsel of shame when we are abandoned. But I glory in the certain reality that Christ is present with me. He will not abandon me. My eternal family will persist. That is good news. That is good hope that I will never leave the presence of God in Christ. Also, another benefit. And knowing Christ is near, we're freed up to take risks and to mess up, right? Uh, think about the toddler. It's pool season, right? Think about the toddler when it comes to the edge of the pool. Most of them are a little tentative about jumping in. Every once in a while you'll find someone will just go for it. But most kids that can't swim are a little nervous about jumping into the pool. But all of a sudden, if they see Mama come near and say, I gotcha, they're thinking, you can see the wheels turned in their head almost. Like, oh, this is not going to go good for me. And I'm going to mess this up. But I'm going. And they jump. Why? Because Mama is there to catch them. The presence of someone greater than you matters. It allows you to take risks. It allows you to be freed up. So specifically in the summer, how can this help? How can this work for us? Meditating on the presence of God with us in Jesus Christ. Now let's take the area of family, right? Some of you will see your in-laws this summer. Family get-together, perhaps. And in-laws are great. Family is great, but let's be honest. Some families have issues, right? Let's say you're getting together and your issue might be with your mother-in-law, right? Seems like she's a lovely lady, you love her to death, but she tends to get on your case about your parenting. Right? She gives you some advice. She has different boundaries than you would have regarding your kids. She might sometimes speak in such a way that kind of undermines the way you're trying to parent. And it feels like whenever you're together, there's just this tension of rubbing together. Well, how does the presence of God in Christ help us here? How can it rescue you? Well... Know that you're not alone in those moments, right? You may be tempted to think, no one else, not even my spouse, really gets this conflict. But know that God, in His presence with you, says otherwise. So you can enjoy Jesus as the one who's there and the one who always has your back. Second, since God is near you, you can talk to Him about this. You're at the beach, you're having a conflict there with your in-laws. You don't have to hold your tongue. Release your tongue to Jesus, right? You feel like, oh, I never can say what I want to say. Turn and say it to God and He will receive it. He will interact with you. and You can treasure Christ in that way. And also, God's presence with you could actually keep you from blowing up. That's your in-law. In those moments of conflict, God's Holy Spirit can restrain you if you turn to Him and interact with Him. That's a way that we can treasure Christ together in a meaningful way this summer. So when we see our families, my call to you is don't squander those opportunities. Don't squander your family this summer. Don't squander that opportunity by failing to treasure Christ. Also, let's remember... This summer, God's steadfast love. Remembering God's steadfast love. Again, let's look at this theme in the Old Testament and the Psalms. Two texts come to my mind. First one is Psalm 90.14. Psalm 90.14. 
says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. See how this meditating on the steadfast love of God results in joy in God. Also, Jeremiah 31, 22-4. Says, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away, saying, I have loved you with the everlasting love. Therefore I have continued in my faithfulness to you. Here's an illustration. Uh, Billboard's Top 100 is the, uh, the group that keeps track of the top songs in America, the top popular songs. What they do is they measure sales, they measure radio play, internet streaming. They take all of these together and they will rank the best pop songs, Billboard's 100. Can you guess which song spent the most time in history at number one? On the billboards, top 100. Anybody got a clue? This could take a while, so I'll tell you. You know what the number one song of all time was? It spent the longest up there. Run Sweet Day, Mariah Carey, Boys to Men. If you don't know, you know what that song is about? It's about uh, someone who has lost their love in death. And they're sad that this love will not endure, but they look forward to a time when they might have some interaction because this person's in heaven. But the idea is, oh, I can't believe that our love has been cut short. It's not enduring. You know what the number two song is all time on this billboard ranking? Spent 12 weeks. I mean, that's like, that's a long time. Uh, That's Whitney Houston. I will always love you, right? I will always love you. What's that song about? That's a song about a person who commits to steadfast love to someone, even though they're apart. I'm going to endure my love forever. What does that tell us? tells us there's a yearning. People like to hear stories of continuing, unfailing love. That's because there's a desire deep down inside of us to be loved steadfastly. And God has this for His people. Think of the history of Israel. After liberating them from the of Egypt, what does God get in return? Well, He gets served, a helping of grumbling in the desert, right? Side order of disobedience from the leaders, and a nice big piece of dessert called golden calf pie, right? This is what He gets in return for His love, for rescuing these people. But how does He respond? Well, He has justice, but He also affirms His love in Exodus 34. This is what He says on the heels of being rebelled again. The Lord passed before Him and said, The Lord, the Lord, I'm God who is merciful and gracious, I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then He lovingly carries them on into the promised land. It's a pattern of God displaying steadfast love for His people. And this too has vivid colors when we look to this in the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. How does Jesus show steadfast love for God's people? Well, you see it all over the place. Here's some examples. Remember Lazarus, who'd been the friend of Jesus, and he'd actually been dead for three days when Jesus arrived in town, motivated by his love for Lazarus and his hatred of sin. Jesus raises him from the dead. Steadfast love for his people. 
Remember the most stressful hours for Jesus right before His death? He's in the garden praying and all He asked of the disciples is, you, you guys just pray here with me. I'm going to go a little far off. You guys pray. What did they do? They returned that with a nap, right? They go to sleep. But what's His response? He pursues suffering for them, right? He's got such steadfast love for them. It's unbelievable. You're reading the story and you're like, this can't be right. And he does. He goes to his death on behalf of these people who just fell asleep in his most painful hour. Even when Peter, he's talking to Peter, and Peter says, I'll be with you, God. And he says, oh, no, Peter, you're going to reject me. Even then, he promises to forgive Peter. Even as he knows Peter's going to reject him, he gives him a promise of steadfast love. You're going to be forgiven, and you're going to have a fruitful ministry. Peter, over and over again, we see Christ as the model of God's steadfast love, but he didn't just model it, he embodied it in his death and resurrection. Jesus told his followers in John 15:13, that greater love has no one than this, someone who lays down their life for their friends. Right? That's what great love is according to Jesus. Christ lovingly chose to give His life for people who would believe in Him. Everyone deserved to die because of the rebellion against the holy die. It's completely rational to think if someone makes you and creates you and yet you turn against them, they have the right to show justice to you. In the midst of this, Jesus stepped in. 1 John 4.10 John says, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. And Paul says, but God shows His love for us and that while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. The cross was a love fest. There's more than that, but it was that. God pouring all of His love out on Jesus, showering His chosen children lovingly, with right standing, with eternal life, with eternal fatherhood, on and on the blessings that flow from the cross of Christ. And this promise I just want to express to all of us here. The promise is for you. Jesus will continue to give you love if you turn away from your little king lifestyles instead turn to his big king love smiles right accept his affection turn away from trying to rule your own life repent and say Jesus I want that love he will come to you and give you eternal life so the offer is there for anyone who would turn well, how does the steadfast love of God Benefit us today? Well, it can help us not to quit. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I struggle. When something in my life just blows up, I struggle with it. I think, well, does God really care for me? And this thing's not going right, so is there God really caring for me? And when I feel like He's not caring for me, I'm tempted just to quit. Well, if He doesn't care for me, then what have I got? I just forget this. I'm quitting. But treasuring Christ in His steadfast love allows us to keep pushing through these painful times. Someone does care about you. And it's enduring. It will never fail. Also, man doesn't knock down your approval. I don't know what I mean by that. I mean, so many of us squander our summers and our lives trying to impress other people, right? Not to lose face or to win somebody else's approval. As we treasure God in His steadfast love for us, we are freed from this burden, right? All this emotional energy that we've been spending in winning somebody's approval can now be spent treasuring Christ through good deeds. It can free us up. Knock down our approval idols. 
Don't stress this out. In a specific summer scenario, well, that could happen. How could this help us? Let's get really practical here. Think about how we spend our money during the summertime. What goes on with our finances? Well, most of us aren't in saving mode in the summertime, right? We've got things we want to spend money on. Uh, maybe we're going to go to the garden patch or the beach or just outside. Maybe we're saving up to buy something that happens in the summer. What can happen when all of a sudden you look there and the money's not where you think it should be? We're in financial trials. What can happen? How can the love of God and Jesus help us? Well, it answers the question that we often have of who's going to be disappointed in me? I think that when I have failures, who, oh, who, I, who did I just let down? Husbands especially. If you go through a time with your family... And all the goodies of life are there because you're running low on funds. You can feel like you have disappointed your children and your wife, right? But the steadfast love of God, accepting the care of Christ for you, can turn that around. God is not basing His love for you on your, uh, on your financial purchasing power, right? Instead, it's founded on His desire and good pleasure to love us. Well, what about another feeling that comes up? Summertime. Money's, money's low. Well, what won't I now have since I'm broke? Some of us struggle with this, right? Comparing others struts in and it's like, oh, what am I not going to have because I used my money foolishly or I did this or I made this expenditure. My sister's kids are getting these training. My kids aren't going to have that. The paint job's going to have to work. I'm going to have to shop at Aldi's and not... Fresh market. But whatever has to cut, you're thinking, what am I not going to have now due to this financial trial? Well, just remember this. You owned nothing when God in Christ elected you before time to be one of His children, to pour out His steadfast love on you. He doesn't need you to own anything to persist in His love for you. That's very comforting. And I want you to remember that. Your bank accounts, your bank balance, bank balance, your bank account balance can fluctuate, but his love balance is going to run steady. That's the kind of thoughts, that's the kind of gospel we need to be preaching to ourselves this summer. Last one. We talked about don't squander your summer by failing to enjoy Christ's presence with you or forgetting God's uh, steadfast love to you. A third way, fixate on his great and powerful works. Treasure Christ this summer. Don't waste it by fixating on His great and powerful works. Again, in the Old Testament, to the Psalms, Psalm 37. Listen to 1 through 3. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with sound, loud songs, uh, loud songs of joy. Hear that joy note there? Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us. The nations are under our food. Again, Psalm 92, 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I will sing for joy. See how his great power and his great works are leading people directly to joy. Psalm 126. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Why? They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. People of the Old Testament would enjoy God because of his great uh, power and his great works. Psalm 105 points this out really well. Verse 12. 
And they were few in number. He allowed no one to oppress them on the 14th. He rebuked kings on their account. So he, the psalmist is recounting all the cool stuff, great and mighty stuff that God has done for them. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness. He made the land dark. He turned their waters into blood. He cursed their fish to die. Here talking about the uh, plague before the exodus. Verse 40, They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven. He opened the rock and the water gushed out. It flowed into the desert like a river. Now they're thinking back on the escape from Israel. And at the end of this thought in Psalm 105, he said he's brought his people out with joy. The chosen ones were singing. People were meditating on the glory of God and His good works. And they turned that into joy. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Sean broke the dam for crazy fishing stories here at TCC. So I've got another one here to share with you. So yesterday, I'm out fishing with my kids and I'm going to try to catch lunch, right? Always a precarious proposition, but I'm going to try. So I'm there. Thankfully, I have my wife and my five-year-old with me because all I'm catching is the bait and they actually end up catching the fish. Uh, catfish. Nice looking catfish that my son catches. And there's two of them. And they're the exactly the right size. I mean, they're big whopper. The good size for the pan. I'm so excited we've caught some fish. And so we're at this pond and nearby there's this ice cream place. We're on this farm where they have, you've seen these things, they have strawberries to pick, they have ice cream, all kinds of stuff. And so they have fishing. And so I got the fish and I said, yes, now I'm going to get some ice cream then I'm going to go home. And so I left the fish on a stringer, tied it tight, done this before, left them in there so they wouldn't go rotten while I'm eating my ice cream, right? So an hour later I come back with my daughter Anna and... We're approaching it, and I make a joke to her, and I say, hey, I hope they're still here. <laughs> and she's like, oh, they may not be, or something like that. I'm like, you know, she's little, and I'm not. And so I, I go down to pick them. They're on a stringer. I pick up the stringer, and all that comes up from my fish are the heads of them. Two big, giant catfish heads with no body. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a catfish. If you know catfish, they got strong necks, right? I'm thinking, what in the world had the power to sneak in here and do something, take something from me, my lunch? Well, then I remembered earlier, I had seen, and before at this play, earlier I had seen about that side, earlier I had seen like that side, monster snapping turtles. What had happened is this powerful snapping turtle came in went stunk, stunk and took this away from me as flabbergasted and I stood in awe of how someone could come with such power and rule, rule my lunch and take it with me me and I just looked at each other like I, 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 what happened this is so, so amazing that's how the people of God would view him in the Old Testament except someone unseen as a powerful one coming and stealing like the turtle, he would come and save. Unseen, powerful force would come and save them and save them and save them. And they used that awe in the moment 
to take joy in Jesus. God's people were enraptured by it. And if we follow the tracks through the woods of salvation history to Jesus, we see this in Jesus as well. In His coming, He now becomes the focus of the rejoicing of God's mighty power. And we see it as you read through the Gospels. We won't read the whole story, but in Mark 2, you have the story of Him healing a paralytic. The guys come and they've got a, a friend who's paralyzed and they can't get to Jesus, so they cut a hole in the roof and they drop him right down. And Jesus comes to him and He heals him. And immediately what happened? Everybody was amazed. And they glorify God. They took joy in Jesus because of the display of His wonderful power. Often see it through sickness like that or through an act over creation. He reminds us that my power commands the storm. Matthew 8, 23. Remember the story when all the disciples were in the boat and a great storm came up, right? And they're all freaking out. They say, save us, Lord! Save us, Lord! We're perishing! He comes and says, why are you afraid? Great moment, right? We'd love to see it. He just raises up in the back of that little boat and he calms the seas. Everything. Awesome display of his power. What are some benefits of recounting the powerful deeds of Christ? Well, some of us just get anxious about creation. Creation is said to be groaning in the New Testament, and we're scared of There's forest fires out there, right? Record-setting floods, tornadoes, sometimes these things are really scary. We can all take the Jesus chill pill. We can all remember that Christ has ruling power over all of these things, right? We can also entrust our kids and grandkids to Jesus. If He has the power to heal a man who had never walked, He has the might to keep your kids and your grandkids safe. He has the power to do that. Let's trust in it. My youngest son, Asa, born four months ago, spent the first half of his life with this breathing disorder. He had an infection, and so he couldn't breathe. And so he's up all night snorting like that catfish. You know, he can't breathe at all. And he's struggling for his breath. And there was a temptation for me to say, ah, I've got to fix it, I've got to fix it. But I go to the doctor, and there's nothing you can do. I look at all these herbal remedy stuff. There's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. I have to trust the power of God to heal him. And he did. The point is not that He's going to heal all of our kids. He doesn't promise that. But the point is we can trust in God's power in these areas of our lives. Specifically this summer, how can we do it? Well, again, let's say you're out in creation. Let's say you go to the ocean. Spend some time gazing out in the horizon. Get a sense of your smallness and the impression of God's bigness. If He has that kind of creative power in Jesus, trust that He's on your side, right? Trust that. If you go to the mountains, a lot of people do that. You're hiking in the mountains. Stare at the peaks there. Stare down in the valleys. Realize that by whatever means God chose to form these things, that power is in Jesus. You think He has the power to a solution? to your problems. He can form these mountains. Yes, trust that He has the power. Go to the beach. Your kid gets stung by a jellyfish. Some accident. These things happen at the beach. Whose power are we going to trust in? The one who spoke and created the jellyfish. Let's turn and trust in the power of Jesus. So, 
whether it's income with your family or special usage of your money or extended stints in nature, whatever you're doing this summer, some of you will do different things. Change will happen this summer. I implore you to treasure Christ. And finally, one of the greatest challenges of our current quest for joy is though it's helpful and it's sustaining, our current joy in Jesus is incomplete because He hasn't come back yet, right? So as great as the joy in Jesus are, we're still looking forward to the coming back of Christ. We already have something, but there's a not yet aspect to it. And I want you to also take hope in the fact that our eternal treasure Jesus Christ is coming. The trail of joy from the Old Testament through Jesus' earthly ministry to our summer doesn't end here. There's some footsteps that go on. They continue on to the new heavens and the new earth and they go forever with Jesus Christ. He promises to be our eternal joy. And I want to close with a promise along those lines. Revelation 21.4 Remember these words. At the coming of Jesus, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty... I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. That's our future joy in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I do pray. Pray in hope. Pray in hope that you would come in Jesus. Come quickly. Come quickly and rescue your people. In this madness, there's death and groaning here. It's messed up. Come rescue your people. I pray that, God, and until you do, fill this great church up with hope. May we treasure Christ this summer. Whether we're with our family, let's treasure Christ. Let's think of creative ways to do it. Father, grant us the mercy. Financial times are hard. Let us treasure Christ. God, as we're out in nature, let us not worship the gift, but the giver in Jesus Christ. God, in all these things, we look forward and hope to the time when Christ will come and joy will arrive and reign supreme. Let us hope in that together. In Jesus' name, amen.